The following is a conversation with Richard Lua. Richard is a Melbourne-based artist originally from New Zealand. He exhibits with Hugo Mitchell Gallery in South Australia and Sullivan and Strumpf in Sydney. He has won a variety of significant art awards, including the Basil Sellers Art Award, the Blake Prize and the National Works on Paper Drawing Award. On the podcast, we discuss his work, uh, the art world in general, and Richard's passion for boxing. If you like this episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Like I've always made work uh, to keep well, to be well. Um, so it's more like uh, I started in a little studio at my house and it was a way to escape you know, the world and escape what was potentially happening in our household. Um, so it was a, an escapism really and it became my little space that I could uh, explore and to sort of uh, go into a into a place that I was unfamiliar with, but it was all about where I could go with my art. With And so in a way, that's how I started my art. You know, it was ne- ne- not necessarily about art, but it was about the escapism and what that could do, what I could feel within that escapism. And there's no... My experience with art's actually very similar, and probably the reason why I got into it was for similar reasons. And I always felt there was no scope to the escapism, so no ceiling to the escapism. You could yeah. uh, read the you know about the life of any artist that you loved, and you could just sort of fantasize about you know running away to Europe and becoming an artist in Paris or something. And you could, and it was a very uh, yeah. The, the scope of an artistic career is so large and uh, broad that it is quite a, a good escapist hobby. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's kind of funny because art became secondary to that escapism that I needed to sort of escape and that therapeutic sort of nature of doing something and the art sort of followed that. So it's kind of funny that, um, and I've always sort of said that, that the art art became secondary to that, um, you know, like, and, I, and I've, I've continued that idea throughout my art practice, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So you had quite a rough upbringing then? Um, when I say rough, it was more psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, a, like I keep on saying, a way of escaping kind of a reality, a way of sort of um, finding out who I could be or can be. Um, and that's the way that I came to art. Do you think it's possible to create uh, interesting art if you haven't got a interesting background or upbringing? I do. I think that you've just got to know the way in which to sort of tap into different things, uh, whether that's, you know, like I always kind of think sometimes I'm a bit of a journalist, like I go into different uh, situations and I sort of document or make work responding to situations. So the upbringing or the autobiographical nature of work um, kind of lasts for a while. Like, I mean, I'll always go back to the autobiographical uh, work, but the work can take in different um, different forms and different sort of momentums. So there's not what you're not caught in one sort of or trapped into a sort of one voice. So would you say your work has got your t- your personal touch on everything, or you uh, to what you were saying you go into any situation and you try to remove yourself from uh, from that representation. Yeah, I mean, like, I, like I've, I've gone into situations that I'm unfamiliar with, whether it's an indigenous community, whether it's a boxing gym, whether it's a, um, 
uh, going to visit an exorcist priest, whether it's, you know, um, looking at nuns, which I'm looking at right now on the table. Um, you know, so so that they're extremes. There's a connection there. There are all extreme things. But at the same time, I try to use or try to understand my place in that and, and then go into those uh, situations. It's interesting because you're quite fearless in the topics that you tackle, I feel. You, have, yeah. you, you don't hesitate to... I make paintings about uh, Indigenous Australians, about the Catholic Church, uh, about sport. You yeah. know, the sport, the sport's something in particular that I think's uh, omitted from, uh, omitted as a subject matter by a lot of artists. Yeah, like I, I guess when I was at art school, I would always uh, rock up with my squash racket, my tennis racket, and people, you know, the other students were looking at that, going, "What, what's that guy about?" And immediately, I kind of thought, "Well, I'm a bit different to a lot of the artists that at art school." But instead of sort of shying away from that, I sort of embraced that in a way and just said, this is who I am and I'm interested in that. You know, like I've always, uh, sports always been a big part of my life. Uh, again, it's like a, it's, I'm not amazing at all, any of my sports. I mean, I've been surfing for 40 years and I think I've just got the thing now. And I, but I love it so much. And it's, a, again, it's a balancing tool. It's a way to escape. It's, um, it's an all-round um, thing because p- painting is very physical, you know, and it's very uh, lonely. And as soon as I get out of the studio, you know, like I go to the boxing gym, I'm a boxing coach, I go and play tennis. You just, need that sense of community because, absolutely. because you don't have it for 10 hours a day. Exactly. And the art thing is different again, you know, like um, I just I love rocking up to the gym and we're talking about boxing rather than art as such. So they, they view, the people there view me as the boxing coach, mm. not, the, not the artist. Art school's a weird inversion of sort of high school hierarchies, I found, you know, where you're not the cool kid at art school yeah. if you do sport. Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I definitely sort of got the same uh, – yeah. had the same experience at BCA. But, yeah. And at the, but then you've got to find – uh, what you want to talk about, and I guess in a way that that forces you to sort of come to terms with who you are and what you want to say. And immediately, I, I was just really excited to go. Well, you know, like I am different from the other students, but that's a good thing, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like I'm not holding myself up. I'm just kind of going. This is this is just different, and this is what I can talk about, and this is what I'm passionate to talk about. Absolutely, I even I even feel there's certain uh, styles of art that are sort of considered old-fashioned, even representational painting uh, sort of had a bit of a renaissance in the last 10 years or so, but prior to that it was seen as an old-fashioned thing to do. Um, but I think that's just an advantage in that no one else is uh, making headway in, in a genre that you're interested in and that you're trying to yeah. uh, become the best at. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, personally, like the figurative thing is something that, Again, the art the art doesn't uh, dominate or dictate that. It's more my experience of things. The art becomes secondary. It becomes, you know, the, at the forefront is what I'm trying to say. You know, like if I'm going into an indigenous community and I'm painting portraits, you know, it's, I'm trying to understand this person. Where do they come from? What do they do? Who, you know, who, who are they? So therefore I'm kind of like when I think about representation or, or abstract painting or things, that just goes out the window for me when I, when I go. You try to remove yourself from the canon of art. Absolutely. You know, like or whether I'm you know, doing an animation or a performance or it's a drawing or it's a painting, whatever, I'm so flexible with what I'm doing because the work or the what I'm viewing, what I'm seeing is dictating to how and what I'm making, not an art. Mm. And there's certainly advantages to being in a, a community like an art school where uh, that's all people talk about is, you know, these yeah. abstract conceptual ideas. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's also an advantage to uh, having tunnel vision for what you're doing and sort of not listening to the noise around you of yeah. all these different movements. And, Absolutely. Uh, because then you sort of fall into traps of well, uh, painting know, to please rather than painting yeah. what you want to do. Art school's hard because you've got everyone in your ear and I just, I, I think about like with boxing, everyone's got an opinion until, you know, someone gets hit. I think that's a you know, quote from Tyson. Well, Tyson, everyone's <laughs> got a game plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. And that's the same with art, you know, like you've got multiple tutors that are going, you know what, Julian, I really like this part, but that. I had that, that so much at art school, it was a and, nightmare. Because you get confused and you go, but someone said that and that, and that's the same with boxing and 
I always say at the end of the day, you know, your, your auntie May might be yelling there and your cousin Jack's doing that, but at the end of the day, you know, you're listening to me as the head trainer. Yeah. But with a who with art, you've got to listen to yourself, mm-hmm. and that's the biggest thing. You have to be your biggest critic, but also, you know, your biggest fan in a way because <laughs> that's you've got to know yourself and you've got to be very thick-skinned and, you know, like everyone's going to have an opinion. It's tough. Those group crits at VCA were so confusing because, yeah. as you were saying, you'd literally have 20 people uh, giving their two cents on, on what you're doing and you just leave feeling so confused and not knowing yeah. uh, what direction you should be pushing things toward. One, It always frustrated me how the uh, – w- I've always warmed to painting. I mean, I, I love contemporary art in all forms, you know, whether it's installation work, sculptural. Yeah. But I've always warmed to painting, so I always did paintings. Uh, but it would always – I'd always do a painting of something and then I'd have – uh, someone who was a bit more, you know, contemporary-minded, saying, uh, well, why don't you make an installation of it? And it's like, well, it'd be a bit disingenuous, disingenuous if I did that, yep. uh, just for its own sake to, you know, make myself look more, quote-unquote, cutting-edge or yep. or whatever. So it was, it was tough for how you paint, though, as well, because it's like if you're using grids, if you're using oil paints, if you're, you know, making mm. smaller paintings, immediately, you, you know, like, as a tutor from VCA, the, the best thing is... Um, pushing the boundaries of the person in front of you and kind, trying to give them an experience um, of their work that they're, they're unfamiliar with and, and to break out of, of perhaps what they, their limitations, mm. you know. And But it's tricky, though, because then you have, um, you know, like shows, you've got your deadlines and all of those things. You've got the essays coming up. You've got so many things coming up. It's not until, I think, after school, after art school, that you actually, you know, come to terms with who you are as an artist and what you want to say at the at the at the time at VCA it's a pressure cooker mm, I, yeah I agree I, I reckon probably about two years after finishing art school two years ago which was two years ago now uh, was when I started sort of feeling whether my work was better or not just feeling confident in uh, saying this is by me and sort of developing my own style there was yep. you sort of lose the hesitancy once yep. you've once you're out of art school yeah well you haven't got everyone just having voicing their opinions and the confusion of art school mm. um, but like I hated art school with a passion VCA I hated it so much but it created um, you know like it put it put me into a pressure cooker where I had to discover pretty quickly what I was about and who I was about and you know for that I'm thankful for um, and it's it's not an easy ride art school it's it's quite a terrible place mm. in my mind yeah no I agree and but the it is a gift in the sense that it is, like you were saying, a trial by fire yeah. kind of in, yeah. in, in what the art world's like. Yeah. Um, and it's great. Like, I mean, I sort of catch up with lots of um, students that, you know, have been in the past and, and most of them are making work and that's all you can really hope for. It's kind of like you go, you get really excited, you go, excellent, that person's carrying on making work and it's tough going because then they're looking at the other side of making art and what galleries and how they can be represented and how they can be in group shows and how they can be in the museums. And there's a whole lot of stuff that, of course, you don't get taught at art school. Yeah. How how many students do you reckon, uh, after finishing their undergrad, just stop doing art altogether, Um, just based on communication you've had with past um, students? Probably 70%. Stop. Stop. Jesus. Yeah. So, but well, I that, guess fair enough, but it's just like, but yeah, I, I guess those the other 30 is what, the people that I see, mm-hmm. you know, but you kind of know immediately who's going to carry on because that you know, there's a fire in their belly, they want to carry it on, they're very hungry, they, um, you know, you don't have to necessarily, you know, ride them to make the work, that they, they are there just bubbling with the energy, yeah, to, to make the work. Mm. And then it's a lot of it's luck as well. If you're in the right time at the right place, someone sees your work, and all of a sudden, you know, things start happening. Do you think that's true? Though I've always, um, to a, to a degree, it's but you know, people will be like, oh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But but at the same time, you're not really going to be a top tier artist unless you've got an original idea. You're worth your salt, technique wise, talent wise. Yeah, it, it it's all changed now with things like Instagram and, you know, like mm. uh, uh, people, there's Instagram artists, you know, and I kind of go, well, you know, you don't see the work in the flesh, you don't, yeah. you know, get the scale, the struggle, all of those things. Like in my day, it was like you got introduced to a gallery, the gallery would give you a step in, so they would pay, you know, a weekly wage to the artist and then you sort of fix up all the money at the end of the year. 
But nowadays that's unheard of and there's multiple galleries and people don't stay with the galleries for a lifetime, you know. Like So things have changed. You, you don't have that um, nurturing time after art school. You're just basically thrown out and, you know, good luck. Expected to pick up the pieces. Yeah, and, and like I said, 70% 70, 70 of the people don't. Um, because it becomes really tricky. You've got to live. Um, how are you going to live? How are you going to carry on with the artwork? Who's going to be, you know, a mentor? Who's going to come and look at your work and critique your work? And and then there's the other side, the gallery side. So it's it's a it's a multi layered, tricky place to be. Very, very. In um in the artworks that you made during your residency at St Vincent's Hospital. Back in 2006, I was looking at them in the lead up to this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, you made several portraits based on photographs of the Sisters of Charity. We've got a few here in front of us. Um, working from photos is often dismissed as an inferior way to paint someone, um, inferior to painting them from life anyway. Um, but in certain aspects, I tend to disagree with this. What do you think is gained or lost from working from a photograph rather than from life? Um, well, I think I, I saw those nuns in the hospital and they immediately just struck a chord with me that I just find them so sublime and so seductive. And these women actually ran the church, the whole hospital. You know that they were the, the the matrons from the money to the caring. The whole hospital was looked after from these women. So I really wanted to sort of pay tribute to them. And so they became you know like a focus for a series of works because they are so loaded. And the imagery, the the, the people who they were. Just because religion is quite a loaded subject. Um, yeah, but these women actually, um, their job, you know, was basically just to run that hospital. And I love that idea that that's their sole purpose in life was to do that. They sacrificed everything to do that, to care for people. Um, being brought up a Catholic, uh, nuns were always around. I was always just fascinated and, you know, how, how they became nuns. You know, what did they do for dinner? What did, you know, did they clean their rooms? Who did that? What happened? You know, like all these basic things. Becoming, becoming a priest or a nun always struck me as just the wildest career path. Absolutely. And it's just the most extreme, I think. So, you know, I get going back, seeing these nuns on the wall was a chance for me to pay homage to them. But also, like, I love the idea that I'd never sort of drawn realistically, but then I adapted my... Um, I guess my skill to be able to sort of realistically draw these nuns. Well, your style's a lot less distorted in these early pictures than it is yeah. today. It's almost uh, John Brack-esque. Yeah, I mean, style. again, it wasn't to do with art. It was to do with just giving these women the homage that I thought they deserved. So I wanted to paint them, uh, draw them really subtly and and warmly. And they they're, they're very dignified figures. Absolutely, the 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 subtle they they they're beautiful objects. And and but this this methodical sort of way of rendering them and the sort of calmness as well was really a beautiful sort of way to make them and that's that again that's what I was interested in doing with that with a series of them it's, it's rare to find a contemporary artist who doesn't take a more cynical approach to religious subject matter do you get do you find yeah. uh, people not necessarily push back but just uh, quite skeptical yeah. of, um, of these pictures yeah Absolutely. I mean, like, like a religion has been a big part of my life, so why wouldn't it be a big part of my making up? And why wouldn't you express that? Yeah, exactly. Because I'm I'm confused, as most people are about it, and, like, um, I've made, I don't know, 160 crucifixions out of clay last year or year before, and that was, you know, I'd never made anything with clay, but it was a beautiful sort of process. Once a day I made a crucifixion. As a kid growing up, what did I see in churches? Crucifixions. It was the most, you know, extreme stories of, you know, Christ dying on the cross. And I was just obsessed by this narrative. So to make these crosses fitted into all of the things that I, how I'd been brought up and what I was looking at. Is it, I, you know, people got so upset by those crucifixions, though, you know, I think it's, you know, I just am shocked that people kind of didn't understand it or just thought I was trying to ram religion down people's throat mm -hmm. because it was more about the making and more about, 
this idea and I love when I see films with crucifixions on the on the walls or you know like I when I met this um, Barry May the exist priest the first thing in his office was you know 50 or 60 crucifixions on the wall and it stuck with me it was amazing yeah and I think part of the problem is uh, religion as an idea is taboo but if you look at religion in purely philosophical terms you know and look at look at it more charitably at the uh, the good things that can be gained from it as an idea um, then it's you know it's much more interesting but people just sort of seem to almost have a almost seem allergic to religious subject matter yep. these days which is which I find strange as well given how preoccupied um, art has been with uh, religious subject matter for forever yeah um, I know and it, it is it's uh, <laughs> I always find it the one of the most interesting stories is when I went to Gumbialandia, the first indigenous community that I visited, and I brought the paintings back to Gertrude Street. I was one of the artists at Gertrude Street, and people were really shocked. We, we were giving a five-minute talk about what we're working on, and people were like, how dare you paint a black person? And I was, I was shocked. I was like, but I'm just, I, don't, I didn't know an Aboriginal person. There was no one, no one of colour in my phone. Um, and I just thought, this is shocking. I've got to go and actually learn where I, I live, you know, like I was becoming an Australian citizen, all of these things. But, you know, it was very fine to put, you know, like a broken teapot up as an image and go, oh, this is signifying whatever. And people go along with that. And as soon as it was something real and it was totally offensive and I felt like that was the most bizarre. I, I really had to... But it's, but it's just... There's so much just sort of surface level virtue signaling that goes on with that. And it's, you know, that's obviously not someone taking a charitable view of why you'd be painting this. Yeah. And it's just someone trying to project, you know, how good am I to the rest of the world? Uh, and I, yeah. And I, and the art world's full of that. Yeah. And, but, I, you know, like I had to justify it and I felt like I was backpedaling. I've never forgotten it because I felt like I got beaten up that night. Mm. Um, and immediately, I think the following day, uh, Hugo Michelle came down from Adelaide and he was a new gallerist and I didn't know him and he came in and he goes oh my god these these paintings well tell me about them and so I did and he was like I really really want to show these because of the, the story because of you know what you've done and it was interesting because I was so nervous then you know and Gertrude was meant to be a real nurturing place for contemporary art and it was like it was the complete opposite and I, I'll never forget the feeling that I had during and trying to uh, justify what I'd done and I knew that why I, I had done it was at such an honest place and it was it wasn't about and you shouldn't take, even have to justify yourself no, to that but no. you've they make you feel the need to and to apologise. And, yeah, and, and it's a really it's a really sort of toxic cultural environment. I it, think it, it is. It, it doesn't encourage. It doesn't no, encourage and, uh, quest, hard questions. It doesn't encourage uh, reconciliation between different cultures. No, and that's what I sort of brought up as well. I said, well, if we can't say do this as contemporary artists, aren't we meant to be sort of bringing these things to the forefront? Like like I said before, sometimes I feel like I'm a journalist. You go into these situations, and I try to make sense of them. I'm not trying to take anything away. I'm not trying to, to you know, like I said, it comes from a pure place within me. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I've, I've kept that in check and I've done different, different narrative, different stories, different residencies and all of that. And as long as it comes from an honest part, that's fine. It, it just seems so uh, puritanical, the whole culture around... The whole artistic culture, maybe, I mean, I've, I only know the Melbourne art scene properly, but it's just, everything's just a, a test of how loyal you are to, you know, far left ideologies and stuff. It's it's never, you know, and, and allowing for honest discussion of, of really big problems, real big issues. And it's, just, it's just how loyal are you to, to what we believe in? You know, like, I, I just think that that's our job as an artist, but maybe things have changed. They have become a lot more you know, politically correct um, and <laughs> sitting in the middle a lot of the times. So People are too scared, yeah, people are too scared to have a kind of conversation we're having right now. Yeah. and to, that, Two people about it. And with artists as well, they get too, too stuck on the idea of 
you know, really making the same painting over and over again, you know, to please other people. And But that's not a conversation that I've ever gone into. Like, I think I get criticised a lot that I, you know, shoot, you know, through different lots of mediums, lots of other things. But there's continuation through my work. And it's not until you, you go back in 20 years, 30 years time, and you sort of see your, your trails of where you've been and what you're about. So you don't uh, make work with the idea of it being a seamless body of work after 10 years, you just let that happen organically. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. You know, and I, I, I always have, I, I think at art school, I was really apologetic that my painting didn't look like the one previously. And I was kind of, I mean, we were taught like, that's not how you make art. Like you'll never get, have a career as an artist when you, you know, like if you can't re- recreate that look, because cool, it's a fine line between developing your voice as an artist, which would imply uh, consistency of theme, subject yeah. matter and technique. It's a fine line between that and being original piece after piece after piece. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Who are some of your favourite artists? Well, um, I think Colin McCann is my, you know, um, what, what is he to me? Like he's probably the biggest influence of my sort of making. Um, Colin McCann was an artist in New Zealand where, like, I saw that he talked about religion, but he wrote on paintings. And I used to write on paintings too, so I thought Colin McCann might have seen my paintings. Oh, right. I'm, I'm looking. Is it M- M-C-C-A-H-O-N? Yep. Yeah, I'm just looking at his work now. So, I actually don't know his work. So, yeah, like a lot of Australians don't know. He's a Kiwi artist. Um, he... His his work still brings me to my knees, you know. Like they still make me um, emotionally, um, uh, yeah. They like they they drop me, yeah. And and I think in a way that they, you know, when when an artwork has that power, um, you know, that just it's just life changing. And again, like he talked he talked in his paintings, and I was kind of like at the stage. I think I was fifteen or sixteen, and 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 I was writing. I was going, oh, excellent! You can write on your paintings. This guy Colin McCann does it. You know, oh, he documents. It's, oh man, I do that too. That this is great. So in a way, he was my uh, like sounding board, and 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 uh, and, and he uh, validated you want you being able to uh, use text in your work. Absolutely, and he, and religion as well. Like I was very confused about religion, and, and he was an artist that had religious imagery, um, you know, and uh, so I felt comfortable, I guess, in a way, looking at his work, but at the same time emotionally charged by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's funny, like, I don't look at a lot of um, artists um, just because... For the same, just before you even say that, for the same reason as we were saying about not having, uh, keeping that tunnel vision and not being polluted by different ideas, because that's certainly why I kind of... I think in a way that, and I just kind of like, I love looking at, at, at art and I love being surprised by what I see. And I guess in a way, um, you know, like I've really missed it last year with the lockdown, of course. So I'm looking forward to seeing new things and the way that a lot of young artists approach materials. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by that way of things, but I don't l- kind of go out of my way now to, to look at an artist and go, oh, this is something that I really want to, you know, um, gravitate towards you don't feel obliged to engage with the art world in the same way yeah absolutely and uh, you know like i think like i just turned 50 last year so it's kind of like i've happy birthday thank you didn't know that (laughs) so i just feel like you know like i i've got my voice and i'm following my heart yeah you know so when did you turn 50 june june 5th i'm june 29 Uh, gemini's did you you would have God, you would have been able to have people then, wouldn't I you? I did, yeah. We yeah. had a two I didn't, Because oh. <laughs> I was three weeks later when they did <laughs> the lockdown. Yeah, yeah we, we had, uh, it was two weeks, I think, we could have 20 people. So yeah. it was fantastic to do that. It was yeah. so, so, and it was a real nice celebration, people getting up and saying speeches and it was awesome. Yeah. And I loved it. That's so nice. <laughs> we, um, yeah, because it was my 25th, exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly nice. halfway. Yeah. But I, uh, yeah, we just. They were even looking at uh, bringing it up to, I think, 50 people. Oh. And then they had that at the abattoir, they had that other outbreak and oh. they were like, like, went straight into stage four lockdown. So, yeah. You'll have to have a big one this year. Massive one. <laughs> um, I was looking at your Get Well series in the lead up to this as well. And aside from Goya and Van Gogh, I don't think I've seen an artist take the inhabitants of a hospital as their subject matter. And 
it surprises me, of course, because within a hospital you have the entire scope of human emotion and drama. Um, have you found it a very uh, fertile subject as far as your art's concerned? Yeah, well, like it was a, quite a bizarre residency. Like we were, I think I was given a top floor of St. Vincent's Hospital where you could just go in and it was your studio and it was it was quite eerie because I could go there 24 hours of the day and it was kind of like, um, uh, it was like almost a horror set up there and it was really dirty as well and I found that quite... So you had like a whole ward to yourself pretty, pretty much. much. Pretty much, a whole ward and it was like, but it was dirty and I, I was so D- like... Dirty in what way? Is um, just grimy and... Just an abandoned yeah, yeah, part of the to- hospital. Totally abandoned, um, the top floor and uh, what they were doing were was the artist had a residency, I think it was for like six weeks, maybe two, six weeks, two months, something like that, and you gave a work to them at the end and then they hung the artwork in the hospital. But my one went for a year in the end, so it was kind of like they... So you were going back and forth to that, that ward yeah, for yeah, over a year? Over a year, wow. yeah. And it was amazing because I I was really interested in like lots of things that were going on, so you ha- could have access anywhere in the hospital apart from... The third floor was for prisoners. Um, and prisoners? So, yeah, prisoners that would come in from the jail and have operations or were getting well at the hospital. Um, but I did have access to the 24-hour um, videos that around the hospital, and that was amazing. That was incredible. All what, the, what do you mean? All Is the it, cameras. You could look at You could... Yeah. That's bizarre. I know. I don't. Why did they give you access to that? Because I could just have access to anywhere. So, like, I'd go into anywhere and you go, I'm the artist in residence, and people were like, oh, right, okay, well, follow me, and there's this and there's that, and, you know, like... It That's was, fascinating. Yeah, I know. And it was, you know, like, they don't do it now, but it was amazing. And so were you going to uh, different wards and yeah. interviewing different people, photographing yep. different people? Yep. And yep. And so, like, I could, yeah, use, it was an amazing place because... You know, like you said, it's just charged with a lot of emotion and, and, you know, you couldn't just bowl up, I guess, to people that were having a full-on family conference with, with the doctors and things. But bit yeah, invasive. <laughs> a little bit. But you just, I mean, again, you become, you know, part of that community and see how people operate. Excuse the pun. But you just, you know, again, you see the extremes um, and I think I went, human emotion. And I went back up there to do my COVID test, actually, not <laughs> to the floor I was in, but um, to do a COVID test uh, a few months ago. And it was quite, it brought back a lot of, you know, like emotion going in there. Yeah, because you'd see, I mean, you've got great courage from great surgeons, you've got yeah. you know, bravery from the patients, you've got agony. Yeah. Sadness, it's got everything in it's, there. It's got it. It's a, it surprises me that people haven't used it as uh, the subject of a series uh, yeah. more often. Yeah, well, they did. I mean, it was the residency that they did. I don't, I'm pretty sure it's not available now, mm-hmm. but um, maybe it was a, you know, a bit looser then and, you know, they sort of thought the artist could do this and, you know. Mm. But it was a fantastic idea because... Really, you know, at the hospital you're sort of lying around all the time or if you're sick and it's great to sort of see art and, you know, contemporary art and it's just a more, um, you know, to make a better sort of environment for Mm. everyone. Yeah. I notice in your work that you'll often slightly skew the horizon line or distort it slightly and that this induces quite a dizzying effect and your works are quite, they're not aesthetically pleasing in the traditional sense of the word and they feel quite rough almost I, I don't know the right the right word to use but you convey uh a sort of sense of discomfort in a lot of your works is that deliberate and is that accurate um it depends on what you know what series you're talking about in a way like i mean i'm if it's like the um the steel works that i do they're very they're very physical they're very rough they're sort of wiping away taking things back bringing them back again and the material i let the material sort of do its thing um and i guess in a way with so much sort of layering going on it's very hard then to make a say like a clean horizon or a or a um a a kind of more static painting Mm. because that it's all about really process and taking things away bringing things back and the steel sort of reveals uh, the process a lot more, doesn't it? In, I, yeah. in, in a lot of your works that are on steel, uh, you, you're much more aware of the brush strokes and uh, the works sort of breathe a lot more than than a canvas where the paint's yeah. absorbed. And Yeah, there's just more residue, you know, so like things are, 
built up. It might not be that the final image at all, really. You know, like they might have oh, I don't know five or six paintings on them, and then they might be wiped away, and then you bring them back, and they're really physical scrubbing, scrubbing. Um, so do you do that a lot? You wipe back a uh, whole day's work if you're not happy with it and start from scratch? All the time. And yeah. do you like to leave the residue from the... Well, it, you can't help but, you know, I think after five or six hours of scrubbing something back, you're physically just dripping in sweat and it's like they're very heavy things. I sort of got ended up getting two hernias from just the scrubbing. So Actually? I, yeah, so I've got a couple of ha- helpers now that, that we just scrub and we, you know, like it's a, it's like being in a, you know, mine or a pit or something like yeah. that because you're just scrubbing things back. And it just, it creates more, you know, history, more more of what perhaps was there before and I like that rather than, like if you gave me a white canvas, I wouldn't know what to do with it. And I, I mean, I hate canvas with a passion, but sometimes again, it is what I use because of the situation. Like I guess, going back to the indigenous communities, that's, what the material we had there you know mm. so it's kind of like I'm not going to turn something down just because it doesn't work you know I love it when things are hard like billiard tables and concrete or steel or other materials that I've used the, the more the more sort of um, harder it is the better and it gives it a monumentality I find with your work as well yeah yeah and it's like and then yeah, it kind of slips between painting and these sort of uh, sculptural sort of elements. But the process is really exciting, you know, like I'm making boxing bags at the moment with steel. And so, like, I'm getting boxes next week. I think I saw one of those on your website, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, next week I've got 20 boxes with all hammers and we're making these steel bags, which will be really interesting. And the performance and the physicality and the duration of things like that. So, you know... the yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Both uh, both approaches have great results, I find, though. When, when something's laboured over and you're aware of that process, it's quite satisfying to look at. But when you get something that's been done in one go, like a Van Gogh, for example, you know, you, you're always aware convey that sense of immediacy that this was done in an afternoon and yeah, didn't I'm really <laughs> trace back uh, errors. I, I wish I was that good. <laughs> mm, no, I'm the same, actually. <laughs> but I just, you know, like, I, I chafe my mind all the time and I beat myself up all the time, you know, and that's part of how I make work. Mm. I've got to make it hard. I'm a stupid little man, you know, like, I wish I could sort of I, I, I'm the same, though. It's not satisfying unless you've laboured over it to some degree. Struggled and gone down a hole and, you know, worked it out like that. But at the end, it's sort of like it is satisfying because you go, okay, well, I've learnt this through this, you know, this process or... Um, oh, this was exciting, this yeah. sort of way of bringing things out. I also notice that you'll often prioritise certain areas of the painting as far as the focal point is concerned by using varying degrees of abstraction and distortion. In other words, the more distorted a figure is, the more the viewer's eye is drawn to it um, because it stands out uh, yep. against everything else. In Make Me Better, for example, the silhouetted figure with uh, white dots all over it is more abstracted than even the bird's 100 meters away yeah in your work in general is this a deliberate approach to um maneuvering the audience's focus um no like i I never think of the audience i never i've never ever thought of the audience it's kind of my own uh narrative i guess in a way like for that particular painting you know that's a self-portrait and whether you look at things like freckles or or sores or hot you know holes that that's um uh, a sort of visual language that I've got that I've continued on with um, but I never think oh okay so the birds are more representational with this so it, it then can can sort of read in another way. But don't you think you have to care about the audience's perspective on it? I guess you're saying you're making it for you. Yeah like I, I nev- I've never thought of an audience because I wouldn't know who to think of as an audience. Yeah. I, don't, I, I mean that's the audience is in my studio and that the audience is me, you know, and that's, I mean, is that selfish? I don't know, but it's just the way that I work. But yeah, it's so interesting because your art for the most part is thinking how will the, my arrangement of these aesthetics uh, convey uh, an, an expression or a feeling uh, to someone else, but yeah. your approach is to completely ignore that and hope something um, come. You, surely you hope that um, something is felt by by the audience. You just you're just in a position. Your position is you don't want to 
focus on that? Yeah, like, I, I, again, I don't even hope that an audience, I don't even go that far. Like, I, that's just, I guess that's why the studio is such an important place that it's just, you know, like, I'm making things there. Like, I know when the painting's finished because I feel it and it's got what I want to say in the painting and then the rest of, can go to hell, you know, really. It's sort of like, well... That's such a good approach. That, uh, like, I'm, I'm all for that mentality. Yeah, yeah and it's, well, I just think that it's just the honest way to go mm. because I kind of I can't I, <laughs> I think my mother always sort of said you know you can't please everyone and it's like I, I'm not aiming to please anyone actually mm. <laughs> you know and I again it's like after working a long well I think quite a long time you get your, your patterns and connections for what you want to do you know within the work and you sort of you keep on pushing till at a time that you go yes this is this is what I want to say in this particular work Mm. It'd be depressing to get to the end of an artistic career and know that you only made you know, pieces to keep the mob off you. And yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it gets, it, there's so many different um, degrees of artists, and it's like I never have a go at anyone, you know, because I just kind of go, well, it's just a, it's just a different way of making work and and things like that. Mm. I was reading Ted Snell's piece on your uh, mostly sunny series, and he begins by writing. We become accustomed to our surroundings, driven by routine. We often fail to see what's there, how it's changing and how it's transforming our lives. Richard Lua makes us see. He introduces us to what we thought we knew and reveals the extraordinary in our own backyard. Uh, I think this is very true of your work um, and what makes it so good, I think. Um, I've always had this idea that art will, at its best, convey cultural, historical or social transitions. Um, you know, an obvious example is something like Turner's Fighting Temeraire, um, you know, the old ship of the empire made redundant by the crude steamship or even something like uh, Bacon's uh, Screaming Pope series. You know, you've got the magisterial nature of uh, a portrait of a pope and then just a screaming face conveying the horror of mm-hmm. post-war. Is this transitory nature something you deliberately try to express, even if you're not being conscious of an audience? Are you, yeah. are you deliberately trying to find moments like this in, mm, in society? Sometimes I think that it's interesting because you've you've got like the disaster series, New Zealand disaster series um, out, and I kind of go, well, you know, like we were going through such a crazy year last year, and I've always been kind of interested in disasters. I've just I've done finished my own disasters book, which is Richard Lewis, you know, sixty two disasters. So the autobiographical nature of that I've done but then I wanted to look at it in a bigger scope of things and I thought you know these these events have shaped not only our land but also the people within there you know and it's how we come together as people or a country so I was kind of really interested in in that sort of um, storytelling within that sort of that, that painting but I go back into the different history um, I love you know the story of the Batavia I, I made that a series last year and of course you know that's about an extreme event you know the narrative and but it was also about um, human human sort of situations where people sort of became you know the leaders and then all of a sudden made decisions for other people so it was just, just for the listeners could you explain uh, what the batavia was and what oh, happened and- okay so the batavia was a shipwreck uh, off the west coast of australia and it was they were sailing um they got completely lost and there was a shipwreck and they ended up on an island and then the the um the general went looking for help and then when he was gone this guy had taken over the rest of the, the ship people and divided them up and really sort of took over and they and ended up horror story of, it's a total horror story and it was just amazing about human survival human uh, interaction when when they become you know evil i guess in a way so i was fascinated by how we would or how we, people respond to that um, so that's in a historical sort of work then bringing to contemporary or um, modern time. And so these things have relevance, like the New Zealand disasters now. They're not kind of finished works. They, they document up to now. Um, well, yeah, because you're very conscious of history in a lot of your work, but you seem quite good at noticing what contemporary events will um, be 
the big moment. So, you know, you're quite good at saying, you know, what events from 2020 will they be talking about in 2030? Yeah. And uh, yeah. you seem to make that the subject of a lot of your work. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting. I just did a drawing called 2020 and it was, I did it in March of last year and it was uh, three people walking down Hoddle Street and they had masks on. But it wasn't about the pandemic. It was about um, the smokes. It was about the fire, the bushfires. So it was interesting that then people, you know, viewed it now. It's at the Bendigo Gallery, and they view it as the pandemic. So I was just, I'm really interested in 100 years' time when they dig this thing out of a, I don't know, a closet. Well, I was even <laughs> thinking if your work, Get Well, is uh, misdated by six years, in 500 years from now, people are going to think that's a, a painting about COVID. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I kind of like that, though. You know, it's like it is a record of time. It is what is what's going on, you know, now. I like, I like that a lot. And it's probably – art's probably the most or the least filtered historical artefact that you can get because, you know, the way someone writes – I mean, for most people, reading Shakespeare – you know, they find that quite quite hard to understand or that doesn't actually give them a, a, a an idea of what uh, 17th century or 16th century England was actually like. Yep. But we all see the same way. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like that idea of documentation. Like sometimes I get confused about the idea, am I documenting or am I, you know, trying to make another uh, judgment or, mm. uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know how to answer that because I don't understand it enough in a way. But I, I kind of, you know, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever work it out. Mm. But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I get the sense that you don't like detail for detail's sake um, very much and you sort of render your figures with as much detail as is necessary and then leave it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, you know, take things away once they've either become too literal or too, um, there's too much information there. You know, again, it's like some people say it's quite folky or, or things like that. And I just kind of, I don't understand that language because yeah, again, you're putting it into a, a, you know, a canon of art or, and it's not about that. And it's like, I've got my, the way that I paint, but I continually change and try to, evolve the work but if you want to call it folks who you know go ahead but it's not about that just reject labels and categories oh, and absolutely, do thing. absolutely because you go well those nuns are they folky no they're not folky you know mm. it's the the um disasters in new zealand folk. no it's not folky you mm. know but um you know it's just a lazy i think term to call things and you know yeah i'm not the best painter ever at, at all i tried my hardest <laughs> and that that's really though because i mean i mean this portrait here of uh, Mother Gonzaga Considine seems like very uh, technically adept. Yeah, uh, yep. But then again, it's like for the time and for the series that I was trying to do. What do you mean? Yeah. As in your? As, as in like um, it'd be really interesting. I don't know if I could do that now. Right. You know, it's it was because I was living with these women really in the hospital for twelve months. And you haven't necessarily kept up the. Uh, the style or the skills no. that you use to render that kind of a picture. No, no. Right. no, no I don't. I don't. You know, go back. I think the closest I did was a series of um, drawings, of portraits of people with mental illness, like friends, family, and so like I interviewed them, like like now, like how we're doing, and then I draw them, and that was a really interesting, really kind of slow way of making their portraits and it's probably the closest I've come to that but they're not as grand as these nuns there's something quite everyday about mm. those portraits I when I'm doing a someone's portrait I'll take 200 photos of them probably over the, oh. over the course of the sitting I'll do a drawing from life as well um, but I find the interview process is oh. so important because yeah. only from talking to them am I aware of which photo that I've taken best represents them. Yeah. And sort of the the drawing from life is more so that I have a better I have a better reference for colours and uh, you get a better sense of the space from doing it um, from life. But the interview I find is oh, absolutely. vital. Yeah, like I remember interviewing um, Billy Longley, you know, from, from... Who's Billy Longley again? It was the guy who was a standover man uh, for the um, painters and dockers. Oh, so, right. Yeah, and that was quite a heavy... In Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah. Mm. He's sort of... Um, he, he's died probably eight, nine years ago. But that was a really tense sort of interview. It was all because he, when how he got caught was his shotgun was under the table, and so we were having this coffee at this cafe, and I kept on thinking, what, yeah, what, what, 
what's under that table? But it was, you know, like he, he had the authority that of a very, very... Of a criminal. Hard, of a criminal, of a very hard man. And I, you know, like I, I didn't love it, but it was like fascinating to me to actually then go and paint this guy. And it was, I just kept on running over my head what he had said, you know, and he kept on saying to me, you've got to get me a can of sardines from New Zealand. This is what you have to do. And at the end of the conversation he goes, what are you going to get me from New Zealand? You know, and so it was, it was fascinating. When I was in Colombia about four years ago, four or five years ago, I was, uh, we went on the tour of, um, the sort of city tour of Pablo Escobar's, uh, you know, where uh, just sites that were relevant to his life. And the the tour guide was actually um, uh, Gustavo Gaviria's, Gustavo Gaviria was uh, Pablo's cousin and uh, second in command. And the tour guide used to be Gustavo's personal bodyguard. And all these, all these horrific criminals pretty much now you know, run the tours and make profit, profit off the, the story of the, um, of the cartel. And I'd said to the guy when I was on, uh, when he was, you know, taking us, we were actually at Pablo's grave when, um, uh, when this happened, I said to him, oh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an artist and, you know, I'd, if you were happy to, would I be able to uh, take a photo of you and do a drawing from it, do a painting from it or whatever? Uh, and he's like, oh, you can draw for me, but no photos whatsoever. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And I was like, <laughs> but then, so I, I get my um, my iPhone out and I'm just, as he's sort of looking away, I just sort of sneakily hold it up and I haven't put, I've forgotten to put the silencer on the phone and I, as I press it, it clicks and as he clicks, he looks straight at me, like death stares me and like it's called, it's captured in the photo. I'll show it to you later. And I'm just, holy shit. <laughs> And I was just going through my head was like, how many men has this person, has this man killed? And uh, it was terrifying. But anything for the art. Yeah. Anything for the art. It's a great story. It's great. Uh, (laughs) um, You're one of the few artists I know who is also a fan of combat sports. Um, You were talking about, um, uh, you know, being interested in uh, boxing before. Um, Would you agree that the two interests don't usually intersect? No, that I mean, that's funny though because we're just doing a show at Maitland Gallery in June and it's called Shadow Boxer. And so we just did a Skype with a well-known author, uh, David Wilson, in London and then Bam Bam, the, uh, she's um, an Indigenous boxer in Canberra who's going for a world, world title. And <clears throat> the conversation that we had over Zoom was incredible. It was amazing, uh, like what David sort of had, where he comes from and Bam Bam and myself. And there's similarities, you know, that cross over. So it's kind of not as weird as it sounds. Not that I, you know, like the way that I got into it was I challenged an Australian artist to a boxing match. I'd never been hit or thrown a punch. And we came together at Conical Gallery in the year 2000 and we had a three, two-minute fight. And you hadn't boxed until, up, up until that point? No, I had never Ever. boxed. I trained with, uh, with professional boxers at Northside Boxing. They sort of took me under their wing after um, explaining what I wanted to do. So I, tr- I was not an artist for those six months. I was a boxer. So that was, you know, like the, it's probably the best thing I've ever done in my life, you know, and it's, um, it car- it's carried on. And I think the thing that surprised me most was the relationship with the trainer and the boxer. So now I'm a boxing trainer. Um, it's a you know great gym. It's three bucks at the door. It's all voluntary. It's it's brilliant. It's for people who come from underprivileged backgrounds primarily, isn't it? Every, anyone, anyone, can and go. that's the great thing. You know, you go in there. You're a lawyer skipping, and you're ne- skipping next to a, um, a Sparky. Everyone's the same. Where is the gym? Um, Preston. Preston. So it's Northside Boxing. So it's you know like it's a pretty unique place, uh, and it's you know produced amazing boxers. There's been you know Australian title holders boxing there, amateur professional. Um, you know, like I do it three hours a day. Um, so it's a big commitment and you have lots of people. Train yourself or train other people? Through I, I, tra- I train other people. I'm the head trainer, so I can't, like I, I miss training, but I, I've got to give my time to them um, because they've got fights coming up and you, you know, it's, a, it's such a psychological and a physical challenge for them to, to get ready. So, Do you train mainly amateur or professional fighters? Well, I like all the amateurs at the moment because with the, with, there are a, are a couple of professionals, but I prefer the amateur because there's no money involved, um, and it's a bit just, more of a purist approach to oh, boxing. I hate this thing, so I but do. don't you think you get better boxing at a professional level when people are fighting for money? No, really, no. 
there's better fighting that I see going on uh, in amateur days than than the professionals. Absolutely, you know, like I'm talking about the intermediate to you know, not necessarily the novices, but like there's better uh, fit ups. You know, rather than professional, it just becomes so political. Like who's fighting who, who's who's expected to win. There's money involved. So it was interesting seeing Lomachenko kind of took that yeah. route with his career, where he, he stayed yeah. amateur much longer than he had to. Yeah. Um, and then it all changed as well because the amateurs could do the Commonwealth, but then the games. But then mm. now they can be go professional and do the games. So that's only just changed. So I don't know. Like and I, yeah, I, I like giving people the opportunity to box. You know, like oh, one boxer's you know he's had a couple of losses, but he's got a physical ailment. So it's just great to give him that. What's his ailment? It's, he's got a quite a bad foot problem, um, but I just, you know, like I'd give him the time of the day because he's there all the time and he's a great kid and he's improving and that to me. But does he just struggle lots with the footwork? With yeah, that? yeah, yeah, absolutely, you know, and it's not his fault. I mean, it's, he was born that way, but, man, I'm going to give him all the time in the world because I go that he, he sort of um, is why I'm there and believe in, in pushing people you know no I, I just really want to give him that win or you know hopefully the judges has, has he got a fight coming up yeah he's got a fight in two weeks so hopefully you know that that works out for him um and it, it's such an emotional roller coaster for for the fighters and that's i get really interested in that like i do yell at them but i'm not a yelling coach i'm more like it's a psychological sort of challenge rather than anything mm. but mm. yeah what do you think of um did you see uh, Tefema Lopez versus Lomachenko? Yep. Month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of good boxing going on at oh, the moment. Crazy at there's, the moment. Um, Tim Zhu, which I've been watching him quite a bit. Mm. His knockout in his last fight was off the chain. <laughs> He's incredible boxer. You Do you know? reckon that was a bad mismatch, though? I just thought that. Well, a lot of times in the professionals, they are bad mismatches. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know who to go to, the Kiwi or the mm. <laughs> or Tim Zhu. But, um, you know, like, he won very easily. So, you know, but th- this is what I'm talking about by the rise of professional uh, boxers. You know, they, g- they go for those easy wins and it's... And it's of, ruining, uh, the, ruining the sport a bit. Absolutely. You know, whereas the amateur, it's... I just, I just find it's... <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'd say it's better, but it's, it is what I'm interested in. Mm. Who are you most excited to see match up? Are you looking forward to the Fury-Joshua fight? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those things I follow, like, but there's so much good boxing going mm. on, though, too. There's actually like 16 or so fighters at the moment uh, who are yeah, just I th- got really interesting. I think last year they made it free to t- on TV quite a bit. Mm. So, like, I was watching it sort of three, four nights a week. Are they doing that with DAZN, aren't they? DAZN's, yeah, yes. and, and also um, Stan's just gone on with the sports as well. Stan? So Stan, really? yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're showing box, they're definitely showing rugby, but... Um, yeah, so anyway, a wealth of, of boxing coming up, so it's good. Do you follow the UFC at all as well? No, no. You know, like I, not I, even Adesanya being a Kiwi? No, not really. Like, you know, I just find that that's, I mean, it's amazing. It's just so brutal, though. Yeah, I find MMA fans like MMA and boxing, but boxing fans don't necessarily like MMA. Yeah, it's just, it's just different. And sometimes I just go right off boxing. As far as watching boxing, I go, it's nothing to do with what I'm doing. Um, because I guess in a way you you know the people that you're training and you understand their background. Um, you know, one of the girls is Pakistani. She hasn't got uh, residency. You know, they've been waiting. So you get involved in their lives in a big way. And, I've, I, you know, like that's that's the boxing part that I really like. You're probably the most important person in their life, aside from family members to, yeah, to some yeah, extent. They, they, yeah, they tell, tell you everything. Can you support them? And, you know, you try to look after their welfare, their financial, their social, their all of their aspects, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's all walks of life that come through that door, and you don't, you never know who's going to walk through one night. You know, mm. who do you think uh, is a pound for pound number one at the moment? Pound for pound. Do you like Terence Crawford? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. There's just so many different, mm. different. Yeah. Lightweight. Would you say lightweight? Lightweights. Yeah. Out of control at the moment. The See, I'd say, oh, I don't know, I'm just going back to Tim Zoo. I just Tim think he's, he's amazing. Do you reckon he can go all the way? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. 
He's just so accurate. He's just again. I just amazing. haven't seen him against anyone good enough to know. But I guess you'd have a better yeah. eye for it. Well, yeah. I went to the um, Jeff Horn and the Michael Zarafa fight in Bendigo. That was a great. That was a great night. It was awesome. Mm. So I mean, Horn got beaten badly, but badly. Yeah, you know. But yeah. you know, like good on him. That's what I think. Kind of go. Well, you've got you know. But now he's got to stop. You know, boxers don't know when to stop. You mm. know. Yeah, and it's just sort of. It, it must be so hard though when you're just being given a paycheck of. I mean, how much would Jeff Horn make per fight? A couple of hundred grand to. to a, yeah, max, max. I mean, that's mm. the funny thing is when talking to professional boxers, they've got nothing else going on. Yeah. And the amateurs have got you know like one guy's just become a paramedic, um, the other one's a plumber. You know, so there's lots of things that they're doing, and I kind of go that's healthy rather than kind of going right. I've got this next fight coming up. Most of them are not. For the hundred thousands, the for ten thousand, you know. And they, well, yeah, because that's a misconception with boxing, isn't 100%. it? I mean, boxing is certainly on the top end with your Canelos and your Mayweathers. Yeah. You're making tens of millions, millions hundreds of millions, yeah. but the undercards yeah. are making nothing. Nothing. They would no. be lucky to make any money once the, you know, the tables are paid, the sponsorship, all of those things. It's you know, it's like tennis. You know, they're not the. Nadal's and the, the Federer's they're making the big money but there's just hundreds and hundreds of people below mm. them that are just scraping a living and so therefore you know it's a misconception that people make money from boxing and again that's a, why the amateur for me is a good thing because most well they all have careers mm. after boxing yeah yeah it's nothing more sad than sort of seeing a boxer that has boxed too long. Yeah. He's still got the ego but not the body Absolute, to match it. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Perhaps if to finish we just talk briefly about uh, Kate Dorr. Oh, um, yeah. So for the listeners, Kate was the head of the painting department at VCA uh, when I was there. Uh, she was a great artist in her own right and um, she helped me at a very difficult stage in my life and was always very maternal kind and warm woman and you know the impression I got was that she was like that for a lot of people um and that she meant the you know what she meant to me for a lot of people uh and late last year she passed away from cancer um so Richard you knew Kate well um if you could just give the listeners a sense of Kate's significance within the Australian art community and uh, what she meant to yourself yeah like I, I was just shocked I'm still shocked I still think you know like um, she came up on a feed the other day and I was just like, de- I'm just devastated every time mm. that I realise that she's not with us. Like, there's not many people like Kate that are just so, so giving and so warm and so genuine. Like, I think I met uh, Kate many years ago when she was working at the VCA gallery and then um, she, in typical Kate fashion, goes, what are you, what are you doing now, Richard? Uh, can you just help me do this life drawing thing? And before I knew it, I was teaching upstairs and, you know, like it was, it was, it was kind of disorganised as all how, but, but there's, there's, a, there's a real warmth there and it's kind of like you'd do anything for Kate and she was just such a, such a good person with all those students that she taught and she would give them so much time and sort of... Um, real genuine feedback about their work and so yeah i'm just at a a just total shock that she's not with us anymore um it's a big hole it's a big hole and it's like i just you know i feel for robert and the the family um and a lot of people that i knew last year you know we didn't get a chance to say goodbye because there was no funeral there was nothing and I think Lisa Radford was saying that you know we've got to do something because the the lady was huge she made such a difference to so many people Mm. and it was just you know like I said last year we didn't get the opportunity to sort of um, celebrate what she did achieve and you know we were in a number of competitive the Basil Sellers together for two two times and just you know like just Funny, she was a funny lady. She just the best sense of such humor. Such good value. Such a good, such a good person, and such a loss. And yeah, yeah, it just makes me so sad to think that she's not uh, not here anymore. I bumped, I bumped into John Campbell oh. uh, about three weeks ago uh, in the city, and we discussed it, and he just seemed yeah. shattered. Yeah, um, and you know, rightfully so. I just don't think anything um, prepares you for that, and it's like she had. With her sister passing away as well, you know, the year before, it was so she had a really bad run, 
and then also, you know, um, becoming the head of the art school, which was amazing. It was fantastic to have her there as that and to reach that level and then... And for it to be cut short. Yeah, very, uh, very cut short. Mm. You know. Yeah. Well, she left her mark at least. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Motivated me to keep going with my art and I'm... I think she motivated so many people yeah. and that's, you know, I always think of legacies of, of life and things like that and I just kind of go what what you leave behind and Kate, although she was, you know, it's a short life, man, she packed it mm. in and she actually changed so many people's lives, you know, for the better and I go, you know, that that's why it's so sad and that's why, you know, there's a big hole but at the same time you go, wow, you did so much. So much. You know, yeah. and it was a sort of privilege really just to know her mm. and what she did and what she's done 100% well on that that note Richard thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, pleasure absolute pleasure really good to see you yeah absolutely Cheers. Cheers. Cool.